Go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We had some friends come over for dinner Friday night. We always like having people over. We're a family of six. They were a family of six. That's quite a lot of people in one place, which happens whenever we have people over. There's that time, you know, people come in the door and you're kind of, come on in, sit down, you're chatting. We didn't know this family real well, kind of getting to know them a bit. And, uh, and then there's that time that it's time to eat. And you say, okay, come. Everybody come. Come to the table. Come find your seats around the table. And everybody gets seated. In this case, we had to have two separate tables, which is kind of the way it goes. But everybody gets their seat. And you're, you're suddenly, rather than this loose group of strangers... You've been brought together by something. You've been brought together by a meal. You've been called to a table together. Throughout history, and I think across pretty much all cultural borders, the idea of sitting in fellowship around a meal spans generations and spans languages and cultures. It's a sign of acceptance and inclusion and fellowship. And this concept of sharing a meal together takes on an even deeper significance throughout the Word of God. There's a little-known account in the Exodus. If you know the story of the Exodus, God miraculously saves His people out of Egypt. You have the ten plagues, and He delivers His people out of Egypt, and they miraculously are let go, and they walk through the desert, and they're miraculously brought through the Red Sea, and, and then they're brought up to the Mount. Uh, Mount Sinai, and God gives them miraculously his law. And in the middle of all those miracles are just a few little verses that are easily overlooked. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, it says, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. That verse, the more I study scripture, has stuck out to me so much. This powerful God that we see shaking the mountain and calling down lightning and keeping the people back because he is so holy. At one point, he says, okay, you my people and specifically the leaders as representatives of the people. But he says, come, and you're going to get a glimpse of me. And you're going to share a meal here in my presence. This idea of sharing a meal with God, sitting in his presence, being welcomed by him, and a meal that he ultimately is the one providing, took on an even greater meaning throughout the time of the prophets. As they looked forward to... In the midst of their horrible situations, they looked forward to a time that God would once again provide. He would once again call them to his table. And Isaiah chapter 25 verse 6 talks about this messianic feast. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And the people of Israel took this through their their times of exile, through their times of return, through their times of Roman oppression. They took this phrase and statements like it to say, the Messiah is going to come 
And even though we are oppressed and enslaved and we're struggling and we're outcasts, he's going to call us to his banquet. He's going to call us to his table. And these people that don't want us around and that just want us to work for them and to oppress us, they're going to be overshadowed by the Lord God Almighty that's going to come and call us and say, come, come to my table. This theme continues throughout the ministry of Jesus. He talks about wedding feasts often and parables about this feast that will come and preparing for the feast. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 31 to 21, we looked at this just a couple weeks ago. We have the feeding of the 5,000 and he sits down and miraculously provides food for all of these people. 5,000 men plus women and children could have been as much as 10,000 people or as many as 10,000 people. And we didn't look at this, but in the parallel passage in John, it says that after that feast, the people wanted to take Jesus and make him king by force. Why? Because in their minds, this is the feast of the Messiah. Their king has come. It's time. The oppression will be thrown off. Let's make it happen. And of course, in the Gospels, Jesus withdraws because he's not ready for that yet. And his kingdom's not coming quite in that way. We see this concept of sharing a meal with God again in the Last Supper. We're coming up on the time of Easter. And Jesus, the Son of God, truly God incarnate, would sit down with his disciples and he will break bread with them. And he will share the wine with them. And they will quite literally eat a meal in the presence of God. At the end of Scripture, in Revelation, in the last book, in the middle of it, Revelation chapter 16, verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Once again, we're looking forward to this great feast, this great banquet. You hungry yet? We're looking forward to this time that the Savior's going to come. And once again, the image is there. Come. Come to my table. There's room for all. Come to those who I have called. Come to my table. So, who gets to come to the table? In Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, Jesus uses, again, this picture of a banquet and a feast as a picture of when his kingdom will finally come. And it says that there are those that will come in, but there are those, even those who were invited, who will refuse to come in and they will be left outside. And they won't just miss out on the banquet, but outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So some will come to the table and some won't. So who is invited to come to the table? By the time Jesus is born in the manger, a long history has developed between the Jewish people and those around them. They called them Gentiles. The Gentiles can be Canaanite, Roman, Greek, Phoenician. It doesn't really matter. They're just all Gentiles. The word Gentile literally just means kind of the people. It's just the peoples. All the other people who aren't Jewish. And Jesus' people, the Jewish people, from the Old Testament, had rightly read that they were the people of God. And that's true. The Old Testament definitely says that. God chose the Jewish people. He chose to work through the Jewish people. 
But in their minds, that's what it took to be invited to that table. As long as you're of a particular nationality, you're in and everybody else is out. Now, I'm summing up a very long and very difficult history with a lot of hatred on all sides of this argument. But we have to understand when we come to read these texts in Matthew and the other Gospels, all of that is right there under the surface, just bubbling away. Tensions, tensions. And there's a theological tension to it of the Jewish people saying, we are the Lord's people. They're not. They're the outsiders and the outcasts. And so as we come to the text today, this question of who should be invited to the Lord's table is really at the heart and soul of what's going on in these two scenes that we're going to look at. We're going to look at a scene where Jesus has a very difficult conversation with a Canaanite woman, a Gentile woman, a non-Jewish woman. And then we're going to have another scene where there is once again another miraculous feeding of a large crowd. Let's start with this difficult conversation in verses 21 to 28. I want you to listen. I'll put it up here, but I want you to listen. And just kind of take note of what sticks out to you and those points where you want to raise your hand and go, wait a minute, I have a question. Okay, because I think you'll come across at least one of those. I'll put it up here for us. Verse 21, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terrible or terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Any point you want to kind of raise your hand to Jesus and just like, uh, wait a minute. There were two in there that I can think of. Number one, he ignores her. Here's this woman whose child is suffering terribly. And she's reaching out to Jesus and he's not even bothering to reply. The other thing that makes me want to raise my hand and go, um, wait a minute, is his little illustration where he basically calls her a dog. What is going on with that? I want to look at a couple clues to really help us understand. And frankly, I'll just say it right up the front here. Jesus did this intentionally to cause us to go, wait, what? Because that's the way he teaches. So let's look at what's going on here. First of all, the word for dog here is not the typical one used. The Jews would call the Gentiles dogs. And it was meant as a mean, nasty, awful thing. It was a common usage. 
The word there for dog, though, that they would use for Gentiles is not the word that's being used here. It's similar. It's close. They're kind of a form of. But the word that was typically used for Gentiles was like stray dogs, a a cur or a mongrel. You know, the ones you just stayed away from because they're disgusting and gross. Don't touch them. If you've ever been in a third world country, you've probably seen that. Remember, we would take teams to like Guatemala or El Salvador. and Oh, a puppy. No, no, no. Don't touch the puppy. They're disgusting. The word here, and, and again, that's the word the Jewish people would normally use for Gentiles. It was a mean, nasty thing. The word that Jesus uses is actually what would be used for a little dog, usually a pet. Now, granted, I'm not saying that makes it all okay, all right? But, but understand, he's setting up a picture, and I really think this woman gets what he's doing. And we'll see that in a second. So, Jesus is not just using this massively insulting word and calling her a bad name. He's setting up a picture to teach her, and I think, in a moment we'll see more specifically, to teach the disciples. Okay, so that's our first clue. Second clue, where is this taking place? Jesus, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Do you know where Tyre and Sidon is? I'll tell you where it's not. It was nowhere close to where he was. Here's a map for you. I'm going to actually try to use a laser pointer. How cool is this? Okay, I know it's blurry, but right here, Sea of Galilee. You see that? Most of what Jesus has done up to this point in his ministry has taken place right around here, a little bit up here. Jerusalem's way down here. He'll take some trips there throughout his, his ministry. But most of it is right up here. Do you see where Tyre and Sidon is? Or are? Way up here. You see this red? It says Phoenicia. That is not Israel. Not Israel. This yellow here is Galilee. That is Israel. This um, blue here, I'm trying to remember the map. I'm pretty sure that's Samaria, which is kind of sort of Israel, but kind of sort of not. That's a whole other issue. And then uh, Judah would be down farther south. I'm pointing in the open space like you can see. Here's my whole point here. What is Jesus doing up here? If he thought that he wasn't supposed to talk to anybody except the Jewish people, why go to a place where the primary crowd would be non-Jewish people? That's like walking downtown Rochester and going, I can't talk to anybody from Rochester. Or better yet, it'd be like traveling to L.A., For the sheer purpose of spreading the gospel, but saying, I can't talk to anybody that's from L.A. That's dumb. It's a horrible mission strategy. You wouldn't do that. The other interesting thing is that as far as I can tell, this account with this woman is about the only thing that takes place right up in here. He's going to travel over here to Caesarea Philippi. We'll look in a moment. He's going to come back down. But as far as I can tell, the only thing he did up here on this trip was talk to this woman. He spent a lot of time on his feet going to a place to speak to this woman. Now, I find that interesting. And it reminds me of another time that Jesus went somewhere he didn't have to go. And he spent time time talking to a woman who was not Jewish. Do you know what I'm talking about? We call her, yeah, the woman from Samaria, the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes through Samaria. 
And, and John actually says he had to go through Samaria, which would have been ridiculous to Jewish people. What you had to do was go around Samaria. That's how they planned everything. All of their trips went around Samaria. You never went through Samaria. Those people were just the worst. You didn't go there. And Jesus went right through Samaria. And in John chapter 4, I think by comparing this with what happens in John chapter 4, we can get a better picture of what's going on here. Because in that interaction with the woman from Samaria, Jesus, I would say, is incredibly kind. He should not have spoken to her as a man, a Jewish man, as a Jewish rabbi. He should not have spoken to her, a woman and a Gentile woman. Plus, as the story goes on, we find out that she is not a very good woman. She has lived a very sinful life, and Jesus is well aware of this. And yet, he is kind to her, he is polite, he talks to her. Now, he doesn't mince words, he calls out her sin, but he also calls her to salvation. So, the question that formed in my mind is, what's different with this woman near Tyre and Sidon? Why doesn't he treat her as he did the woman at the well? And I'll tell you, I think there's a key difference between these two stories, and that's the disciples. If you know the story of the woman at the well, where are the disciples when he's talking to the woman? They're in town. When Jesus is speaking to the woman, it's just him and her. That's it. Nobody around. He's dealing with her. Here, in Matthew chapter 15, where are the disciples? Right there with Jesus. And do you remember I told you a couple weeks, we're in a section of Matthew where the focus of Jesus' ministry shifts. It shifts. He's still spending time with the crowds, but the primary emphasis of what Matthew is talking about in this section of Matthew is Jesus' interaction and teaching of who? The disciples. That's the focus. So, the way that Jesus treats this woman I believe, is primarily to teach a lesson to the disciples. And this was a common way that the Jewish rabbis would teach. They would get a hold of your attention. They would do something shocking. They would sometimes use your words, and they would have it come out of their mouth, so you would go, ooh, that sounds worse when you say it. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. Look at verse 22. Let's look at a couple other things, some clues as to what's going on. Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out. What does she call him? Lord, son of David. This is one of the best expressions and declarations that Jesus Christ is the Messiah in all of the New Testament. Lord, son of David. She uses a very Jewish word, son of David. This is Messiah. You are the Jewish Messiah. I recognize who you are and I'm declaring who you are. In verse 25, she kneels before him and calls him Lord again. In verse 27, she actually calls him Lord twice. Yes, it is Lord. That's the first. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. That's the exact same word. It means Lord. In this passage, at least four times, she calls him Lord. Do you remember what was going on in Jesus' ministry around this time? If you flip back to Matthew chapter 12, what did the religious leaders call him? Beelzebul or Beelzebub, which is basically saying, you're Satan. They looked at the Son of God and said, well, you're only able to do these things because you're the devil. They totally missed it. 
Here the Canaanite woman is saying something about Jesus that is more accurate and is greater than what the religious leaders were able to do. There's another clue. Jesus gives this illustration. You know, some people will say Jesus called her a dog. I don't think he actually does call her a dog. He's setting up an illustration for the point of teaching. Yes, in the illustration, she's the dog. Okay, I get that. But he's not just coming out and being like, you dog. He's not saying that. He's teaching. In verses 26 to 27, we have to understand the implications here. You see, to the Jewish mindset, even if they had this pet dog, not the mongrels, those were outside, you didn't touch them, but the pet dogs, you wouldn't take the food from the children and give them to the pet dog. You wouldn't say no to the child, you don't get to eat, I'm going to feed the dog instead. That's bad parenting. That's pretty much across all cultures. And that's, he's setting this up going, wait a minute, I have been sent to the Israelites. Is that true from Scripture that Jesus was sent to the Israelites? Absolutely. Did he spend most of his time with the Israelites? Absolutely. Even as the New Testament goes on, we have the Apostle Paul, who was a missionary sent to the Gentiles, and yet where does he always start his ministry in almost every town he comes to? The Jewish synagogue. There is an order throughout Scripture that the gospel was to go to the Jews first, but then it was also to go to the Gentiles. Now, the Jewish people like to stop and go, yeah, yeah, to the Jews first, and they just kind of stop there. And this is a powerful interaction here that's going on where Jesus is saying, don't miss the second part. So yes, his ministry was first to the Jews. But then her answer here is so full of faith. She says, yes, it is, Lord. He makes the statement, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This is powerful. I hope you're getting this. Do you remember the first beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he makes these profound statements. Because who gets the kingdom of heaven? The religious leaders? The self-righteous? The really important people that act really, really good and have all their laws up on the wall and they're able to check them all off? No, the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. Now think back to what this woman is saying. She says to the Son of God, I know who you are. And even the crumbs you are willing to give me is enough for me. She is the very definition and demonstration of being poor in spirit. Meanwhile, the disciples wanted to send her away, and the religious leaders are saying that Jesus is Satan. Let's look at one more thing. Look at what Jesus says about her faith in verse 28. He says, in the NIV has woman, you have great faith. That's kind of weak. In the Greek, it's, it's really packed full of emotion. It's, oh, woman, dear woman. He, he is overcome with her faith and so impressed by her. And she, he says to her, you have great faith. 
And again, without even going to this woman's house, her daughter is healed. And once again, this should remind us of another time that something similar happened with Jesus. There was another guy. Do you remember that Jesus didn't even go to his house? The, the what centurion? The Roman centurion. Jew or Gentile? Gentile. And do you remember what Jesus said about his faith? You have great faith. As far as I know, there's twice, two times in Matthew, Jesus says that somebody has great faith and both of them are Gentiles. Do you see a pattern here? Do you remember who Matthew's primarily writing to? The Jewish people. And he's saying, wake up. Don't miss this. These people you thought were outcasts and worthless, they got what you're missing. Don't Miss it. Matthew chapter 14, verse 31. Just to put this in even another context. Jesus, uh, if you remember, Peter gets out of the boat and he's walking on the water and then he struggles and Jesus looks at him and says, you of little faith. That's just the last chapter. Matthew 16, verse 8. We'll get to this passage in a little while. Jesus again says to his disciples, you of little faith. So not only do we have this Gentile woman being held up and compared to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish crowds, Jesus is even, and Matthew is especially, shining a spotlight on, let's compare her even to the disciples whose faith was struggling. Now, what do we learn from all of this? I believe that if we actually understand the cultural ramifications that's going on here in the heart of Jesus for teaching and training his disciples, what we see, what I see, is that Jesus deeply loved this woman. And he heals her daughter and holds her up, not just to his disciples, but here we are 2,000 years later and we're still reading about this woman and she is held up as an example of great faith. Jesus loved this woman. Jesus also knew there was an important message that his disciples had to learn. They had to understand, just as we still do today, that our categories are too small and our judgments and our prejudice gets in the way of real faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, is ultimately not sitting in judgment on Jesus and sitting there going, oh, Jesus did this. That's right. I agree with that. Uh, he did that. Mm, not so sure about that. But I'll accept this, Jesus. That part, I'm just not really sure about. I'll leave that over there. That's the way the religious leaders approach Jesus. This lady approached Jesus saying, whatever you have to give me is what I am trusting in. If it's crumbs, then it's crumbs. If it's a meal, then it's meals. You are God. I am not. I will trust you. That's great faith. Great faith. Desperately trusting Jesus as our Lord and Master and trusting that whatever He gives us and wherever He leads us, it is enough. Now, in the time that we have left, briefly, I do want to look at this second scene. We're not going to go into as much detail because so much of it is similar to things we've seen before. But it's the similarities, I think, that really hold the root of how this impacts us. 
What we see after this difficult conversation is the feeding of the 4,000. And again, that should ring some bells. Didn't we just hear about Jesus feeding 5,000 people? Why is it being recorded again? In fact, some scholars have said, oh, it's just the same thing being recorded in two different places. It's not. It's completely different. Let me read this quickly for us, starting in verse 29. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Sorry, it was behind one. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people, for they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Now, Again, we're not going to walk through everything here, but I do want to look at why this is crucial and how it compares to the last feeding and why I'm preaching it along with this Canaanite woman. And the key idea that we need to understand in this passage is that the people being fed here are Gentiles. And you might think, wait, it never said that, and it didn't. But let's look at a couple clues. Verse 29, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Now, that kind of leaves it open-ended. West side of Galilee is Jewish. East side of Galilee is Gentile. We don't really know. It just says along the sea. It's one of those two. Verse 31 is one of the biggest clues. They praise the God of Israel. That wasn't a typical phrase that the Jewish people would have used. They would have said the God of our father, Israel, the God of Abraham. But these people are praising the God of those people. This is a Gentile crowd going, wow, their God is the one true God. The other interesting key difference between this and the feeding of the 5,000 is in the number of things that are collected at the end. How many basketfuls were collected in the feeding of the 5,000? Twelve. And we can go round and round. Well, what does 12 mean? Well, there was 12 disciples. There were 12 tribes. 12 is a very Jewish number. It pops up all throughout Scripture. And they would have recognized this, that this kind of referred to them in some way, shape, or form. Seven is not. I mean, we could go into, they kind of read into seven as the number of completion, perfection, those sorts of things. And that might be going on here. But all I want to look at is this is not 12. It's not a Jewish number. There's no Jewish significance to the number whatsoever. Here we see Jesus being Jesus. He's loving the people. He's healing the people. He's teaching the people. He's feeding the people. And the people he's doing this with are not the Jewish people. I don't think you and I can quite grasp how revolutionary that was to his disciples. Feeding of the 5,000? group of Jewish people 
Yes, this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The feeding of a bunch of Gentiles and doing miracles with them. Jesus, this is a waste of time. Let's get back to what we're called to do. And yet Jesus purposefully and intentionally goes to these Gentiles. And what he does with them is he calls them to come to the table. He calls them to a banquet. And he feeds them demonstrating to the Jewish world and to the disciples, these are my people too. The gospel is for them too. Throughout history, the Jewish people had assumed that these promises so often were just for Israel, and yet they missed a key thing. In the very covenant with Abraham, when God first approached Abraham and made a promise to him in Genesis chapter 12, the end of the covenant says, after saying all the ways he'll bless Abraham, he says, and all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. The blessing for the Jewish people was never meant to be kept by the Jewish people just for the Jewish people. They were blessed by God to be a blessing to others. Here we see the Son of God, the Messiah, saying to these outcasts and hated Gentiles, come to the table. This is one of those sermons that could just be a really nice educational experience for you. Maybe you wouldn't call it nice, but I hope you will. It needs to be more than that. There's a couple important biblical themes we need to understand. I'm guessing if I go around in this room and count how many of you are from a Jewish background, that number would be awful close to zero. Maybe one. I said close to zero. You're not on stage. You don't get to correct me. Think about the ramifications for that for a second. If the Jewish people were right, or if Jesus never challenged their thinking, if the disciples that went on to form the early church didn't get this lesson, and the lesson of Peter seeing the sheet left down, let down from heaven, and God saying, get up, kill, kill and eat, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean, and he never went to Cornelius' house, guess what? You and I would not be here we would be doomed to eternity in hell apart from Jesus Christ. But Jesus took these disciples to a place they had no business going to say, watch. Watch me invite this woman to come. Watch me invite these people to come to the table. We are the Gentiles. And the truth is, even if you're Jewish, we are all in some ways the Gentiles in this passage because with our relationship with God, we are the outcasts. We are the sinners. We should be the ones left outside the door. And through Jesus Christ, God says, come, come to my table. We are the Gentiles. And we need to, like this woman, come with a poverty in our spirit, recognizing our desperate need. Instead of putting our ideas on Christ, we need to say, we will accept and learn and listen to whatever you have for us. Even if those conversations are incredibly difficult. And they often are. The second thing I think we need to take away from this 
is that we still live in a world divided by race and hatred. I don't think it's ever changed. And quite frankly, until Jesus comes back, I don't think it ever will. We need to look to Jesus as our example. Look at how he treated people. Look at how he purposefully went out of his way to reach this woman. Look at how he dealt with her. And yes, we might say, wait a minute, that's a hard conversation. Yes, crossing racial boundaries and and bigotry and hatred, those are difficult conversations. But look at where it ended up. Oh, woman, you have great faith. That was his whole point. The other thing thing I think we need to learn from this is that Jesus is the ultimate answer and the solution to this hatred. As I watch our culture deal with the racial tension that just constantly bubbles up in our world, in our society, and in our country, I want to just share with you a growing suspicion that I have. Or maybe it's an observation. And it's that I believe that all of the human effort that is being made to fix these racial divides is only making it worse. That's my impression. I think we need to be careful. We don't take that and just say, well, don't do anything. No, no, we need to do something. But here's the thing. Human hatred will not be fixed with human wisdom. Because it's often human wisdom that led to the hatred in the first place. This makes sense. I'm me, you're you, I get to hate you because you're not me. That's human wisdom in a nutshell when it comes to racial divide. Why do we think we're going to be so smart to get ourselves out of it? Scripture tells us that we are all sinners. We all have sinful tendencies. And a part of our sinful tendency is to see ourselves as right and everybody else that's different from us as wrong. And guess what? Everybody is different than us. Praise God, everybody else is different from us. And so what we need to do is say, at the heart of all of this, the issue is that we're a bunch of sinners and our hearts need to be changed. And then we go to Scripture and we see only Jesus can do that. One day, Scripture tells us a banquet will be spread on the new earth, the new heaven. And the voice of Jesus will call out to all who have been saved by him, those who have trusted in him as their Lord and their Savior, just like this Canaanite woman. And the call will go out, come to the table. And we will sit with our Lord and our King. And we will sit around a huge table with a bunch of people that look like us and a whole lot more that don't look like us at all. And we'll look at some of them and go, you're here too? And they'll say, Jesus saved me. And they'll look at us and go, you're here too? And we'll say, Jesus saved me. And instead of looking around that table and go, man, we did so well to get you here and get you here and get me here and we worked so hard, we're going to just stop and say this was all of Jesus. Because if it was left up to us, we would screw it all up. 
Listen to the call this morning. The call of the gospel from Jesus Christ to each one of us, Gentiles or otherwise. Come. Come to the table. Be a part of God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are messed up people living in a messed up world. And we open up the Gospels or we could go to Genesis or anywhere in the Old Testament or anywhere in the New Testament and what we are going to see is a bunch of messed up people living in a messed up world. But what we're also going to see is the power of the gospel working through those messed up people, saving them from themselves and their sin through your son, Jesus Christ. And then that gospel overflowing in their lives and transforming relationships so that someone like Peter could go to someone like Cornelius that he wouldn't have even spoken to, let alone gone into his house. And yet he goes in and the gospel is preached and a church is born. Father, I wish I knew what happened to this woman from Tyre and Sidon and the impact her life had. We know about the woman from Samaria and how the whole town came out to hear the gospel. And Father, I pray, I pray that we would look at these and say, man, I have been blessed with the power and the news and the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we understand that we have been blessed to be a blessing, to not just keep that to ourselves and say, look how great we are, but to take that out into the darkness of this world, in the midst of hateful, hurtful relationships, to say, let me tell you about Jesus and how much he loves you. And Father, we look forward to that day when Jesus comes back and we will sit around your table and you will get all the glory for every single guest that is there because our hearts have been changed by you. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.